So, uh, as uh, most of you know, uh, we're starting a new series on marriage. And uh, it's not what you think. Um, it's not a practical how-to guide on, you know, marriage finances and, you know, uh, improving your communication skills and who should do what chores. And uh, besides, you don't want that kind of advice from me uh, because who am I, right? Uh, I'm not uh, any kind of marriage guru. Christine and I have only been married for seven years. Uh, but more than that, I can't give you, I can't do that kind of sermon because the Bible actually doesn't give us very much in the way of practical advice. But rather, the Bible asks, uh, answers the more deeper questions about the purpose and the reason and the meaning of marriage. And I think ultimately that is far more helpful to us because if we're going to do this thing called marriage, right, we'd better learn the way God intended it to be, right? Because God is the designer, and therefore we'd better follow His rules, or else we'll break it. Imagine this scenario. Imagine that, um, if you can, a person who has never seen a cell phone, and you give him a brand new iPhone, and he has no idea what it is. He's like, what is this? And he says, maybe this is a hammer. And so he finds a nail, and he begins to smash the face of the iPhone on the, on the nail. And of course, it shatters and breaks. And so he brings it back to you, and he says, oh, this iPhone thing you gave me doesn't work. It's broken. What would you say? You would say, that's because it's not a hammer. You're, it's, that's not what it was intended for, and now you've broken it, and so it is with marriage. And so it is with marriage. And so we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say about marriage, and there's a lot here. And so it's going to take us through seven sermons. Um, it's kind of a running joke now that people are saying this sermon series is getting longer and longer. Someone sent me an email and said, uh, I look forward to your eight-part sermon series. Um, <laughs> it will not go beyond seven because Easter is kind of the deadline. And so uh, for sure, we will, we will, <laughs> we, it will be only seven. But today is really not a self-contained sermon, but it's really an introduction to the entire series, okay? And so we're going to just lay the ground, we're going to set the paradigms. Uh, before we begin, let me say a quick word about who I'm addressing. And so as I worked on this sermon series on marriage, I had three sets of people in mind, okay? And the first group I had in mind was people who were married. So that, you know, we learn better what it is that we're actually in, and therefore, to offer us hope for those of us in broken and difficult marriages, right? To offer, perhaps, the chance of healing. And then the second set of people I had in mind was those of you who are single. Because I know that most of you who are single want to be married. And so what is it that you want to do? What is it that you're so eager to get yourself into? And so this will help you to prepare and to make good decisions in the future. And then finally, the third group of people I had in mind is those that God, God has called to a life of singleness. Because, as you will see in this sermon, marriage is more than about marriage. There's something else. And so it's of enormous value to you as well. And so those are the three sets of people I have in mind. And I think that about covers everyone in this room. And so I think it'll be a great benefit. All right, so we're going to look at uh, Ephesians 5 in our text. If you guys can turn to page 4 in your bulletins. Ephesians 5 is uh, the most, uh, certainly the most famous passage, one of the longest passages on marriage in the Bible. And Ephesians 5 is going to be our base text for the next seven sermons. Right? We're going to unfold and unpack 
what's the riches that are in this passage for the next for the whole series. All right. So uh, if you guys can look, uh, starting in verse 21, I'll read for you Ephesians 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and, tr- and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. All right, so the first thing we need to do if we're going to talk about marriage, right, is recognize our biases. Because... um, our culture fills our brains up with so much clutter, you know? And we just breathe and drink in our culture. And our culture is so pervasive that it profoundly influences, and I would even say corrupts our understanding of marriage, so that we don't even know, we don't even recognize that we have drunk from the Kool-Aid, right? Because our, our modern world's view of marriage is radically at odds with the biblical vision, Right? Because our, the world says something so different than what the Bible has to say, and therefore, we need to take a step back and we need to evaluate. And we need to cast a critical eye at culture. And this is going to be tough. This is going to be challenging. And I imagine that some of you, as you're, as you're listening to this message, are going to be angry. You're going to be so mad at what I'm saying. And I want to plead with you to, to, to stay with me and to think this through with me, you know, before you jump up in anger because I think ultimately um, it will be a great benefit to you. And so what's my argument? What, what, what am I trying to say? And so here's my outline. I have three points. Point number one is that our culture so elevates romantic love as the ultimate thing, right? And so we're going to look at the idolatry of romantic love. And then point number two, we're going to see why that idolatry of romantic love is an enormous problem, why it makes us incredibly miserable, and then finally, number three, we're going to look at what the Bible says. And the Bible says that marriage is not an end to itself, but it's a signpost to a greater and ultimate reality. And so we're going to see that marriage is gospel reenactment. All right? So those are my three points. So let's begin. Point number one, idolatry as rom- um, sorry, the, the, the idolatry of romantic love. There's an ancient Greek myth that goes that in the beginning, human beings looked very different than the way they do now. In the beginning, human beings, all human beings had two heads, four arms, and four legs. And it was the perfect union of two people joined together. And because we had our perfect partner sewn into our very being, 
we were the happiest of all creatures. And we, had, we experienced this perfect completion. But because of our happiness, it made us proud. And in our pride, we neglected to worship the gods. And so the gods on Mount Olympus looked down on humanity with anger and, and jealousy. And so Zeus punished all of us by cutting us all in half. And he created a world of people with only one head, with only two arms and two legs. And we have been miserable ever since. And we have been, we, we all have this sense, right, that we are missing our other half. And so we go about searching all our lives, searching for that one person who will finally complete us, our soulmate. And actually, did you know that the concept of soulmate comes from that Greek story, that Greek myth? And I, and I think that story is so good because it perfectly captures the modern view of romantic love, right? Which is that our deepest desires, our most cherished dreams is that one day, somewhere out there, is the one, right? Capital T, capital O, right? The one. You guys all know what I'm talking about, right? And we all have this fantasy that, you know, one day we're out there doing grocery shopping and uh, maybe you accidentally drop a can of peas and uh, as you stoop down to bend up, bend, a, bend, uh, bend to pick up the can, there before you is this handsome and beautiful stranger and you lock eyes, right? And it's like you could peer into each other's souls, right? And your knees feel weak, your heart is a flutter. Why? Because at last, at last, you found the one, right? The one who will dazzle you, the one who will inspire you, who perfectly gets you, you know? You have the exact same taste in music, you laugh at the same jokes, and so you fall deeply and madly in love, and at last you experience completion, right? Wholeness. It's like that scene uh, from the movie Jerry Maguire, where uh, there's this scene at the end of the movie, right, where the character played by Tom Cruise comes home, and he says to Renee Zellweger, um, in that kind of trademark uh, passion of his, Tom Cruise says, right, he says, um, I love you, you complete me. And uh, we all know how the rest of the scene goes, right? Renee Zellweger says, um, shut up, just shut up, you had me at hello, right? And why is that scene so famous? I mean, why is that scene kind of emblazed in our cultural memory? I remember watching that movie 15 years ago, and yet, you know, it still has, it, we all know that scene. Why? Because I think that scene perfectly articulates what our culture says about romantic love, which is that it's this thing that will give us completion, Right? that we have this gaping emptiness in our hearts, and if we just find the one, we'll be filled. Um, several years ago, uh, there was a guy named Tom Barella, and he kind of made this media splash because um, he bought this billboard ad along this busy freeway in, uh, in New York City. And uh, the billboard ad basically said that he was looking for a wife, and it directed women to his website. And if you go to the website, you know, it goes on to explain that he is successful in life, you know. He's doing great in his career. He's doing great um, in his finances. And he has lots of friends. And everything is going great in his life, except he's missing that one crucial piece. He's, he's missing his soulmate, right? That's the actual word he used. He's missing his soulmate. 
And uh, it created this media uh, attention because, you know, it's kind of outlandish to buy a, a billboard ad. And so this interviewer asked them, you know, how will you know? How will you recognize her? Because Im let's imagine that your website draws, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of email responses. How will you know which one is her, the one? And without skipping a beat, he answered, I'll just know. I'll just know because we'll meet, she'll give me butterflies, she'll inspire me to love her forever, and I'll just know. And uh, so Tom Barilla is this guy, right? He's dated numerous women, but for some reason, he's never been able to find her, the one. And I guess he reasoned to himself that his problem was a lack of visibility, right? That his soulmate was out there driving the freeways, and she had no way to, to contact him. And so the solution was he had to buy a billboard ad, and she would see the billboard, and she would just know, right? There would be like this magnetic connection, and she would find her soulmate. Now, admittedly, um, I'm making fun of Tom Barella, and uh, he is an extreme case, but I think he is the natural outworking, right? He's the logical conclusion of what all the movies tell us what all the popular songs on the radio constantly beat into us, right? That's in our magazines, it's in our books, right? It's in Disney Pixar films, which is what? That if you could just find true love, then that, that aching emptiness will be filled and you'll be complete and you'll find meaning and purpose and identity. Why does our culture tell us this? Why has our culture so elevated romantic love as the ultimate thing? And the best explanation I've ever come across uh, comes from Ernest Becker. And the Ernest Becker is a philosopher. He's a cultural anthropologist. And the book for which he is the most famous for is called The Denial of Death. And there's this passage in that book. It's just, it's just so dynamite. I first heard um, this quote from a sermon that Tim Keller was preaching. And it just stuck with me because it's so insightful. It's so penetrating, okay? And so before I read you the quote, let me just set it up for you. Um, Ernest Becker is saying that basically our modern secular culture no longer believes in God. Right? But, but that creates this problem because we still need transcendence. We still need meaning and identity. And so where do we look for it? And so what's really amazing is that Ernest Becker is a non-Christian, okay? And, and yet he's... What he says is so true. I think he nails it on the head. Let me read for you. Listen carefully. This is what he writes. Once we realize the failure of the religious solution, and by that he means belief in God, we can see how modern man edged himself into an impossible situation. He still needed to feel heroic, to know that his life mattered in the scheme of things. He still had to merge himself with some higher self-absorbing meaning. If he no longer had God, how was he to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to him was the romantic solution. He fixed his urge for higher meaning onto another person in the form of a love object. The glory that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill his life. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. 
We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified, to know that our existence has not been in vain. We turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through love. Alas, human partners cannot do this. The lover does not dispense cosmic meaning. He cannot give absolution in his own name. Do you see the argument that Ernest Becker is making, right? He's saying because our culture no longer believes in God, or at least we push God to the margins of our lives, therefore God can no longer give us meaning and significance, but we still need those things and we cannot give them to ourselves. And so what we've done is we've made the romantic idea, we've made the one to be for us what only God can be and to give us that sense of validation and completion. And so we imagine that if we could just find the one and we could just fall into their embrace, then at last, at last we'll be at peace and everything will be okay and all the world will be right. And so that's my first point, right? The idolatry of romantic love. And so that leads me to my second point then, what's the problem with doing that? And the problem is that we're looking to the romantic idea ideal to be what only God can be, right? It's like using an iPhone as a hammer. You can't do that because you will break it. That's not what it was intended for. Um, one of the trends that sociologists have been noting, and this has been going on for quite some time, is that people are now getting married later and later in life, right? It used to be the case that almost everyone was, everyone was married by their early 20s. Uh, but now it's very, very typical that people get married in their late 20s and into their 30s, right? Because it used to be the case that, you know, if you met somebody and you had the same values, you shared the same goals in life, and there was an attraction, you would get married. But now, because you're not just marrying any person, you're marrying the one. And now there's this incredible pressure for there to be a spark, you know, for there to be this incredible chemistry and this deep soul connection, right? And so you just can't marry any person. It's like that episode in Sex and the City, right? Where uh, Carrie Bradshaw is engaged to Aiden, right? And if you're familiar with the show, you know that Aiden is a really swell guy, you know, he's sweet, he's kind, he's generous, um, he's forgiving, he's a really good guy. You know, for Carrie. And more than that, Carrie actually genuinely loves Aiden. But she can't go through with it. Why not? Because she doesn't feel that special something, you know? She doesn't feel that special something to let her know he is the one. And the show is telling us Aiden's not the one, it's somebody else, right? Uh, one of the books that I've, uh, I recently read is uh, by Lori Gottlieb. And uh, it's called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. And uh, it's a really fascinating and interesting book. Basically, uh, Lori Gottlieb is a woman uh, who in her early 20s and 30s had no problems getting dates. Right? She was you know, attractive, she was intelligent, so she had, she had all these guys always asking her out on dates, and she had tons of opportunities to get married, but she was never able to find you know, what she, whom she calls Mr. Right. And she was absolutely convinced that he was out there waiting for her, you know, like sleepless in Seattle. 
And all she had to do is persevere. All she had to do is hold out and wait for him because this is true love. But then she went into her late 30s and she began to worry because the other thing that she really wanted was she wanted to be, she wanted to have children. And Mr. Wright hadn't yet shown up. Where was he? And so she said, you know what? At age 39, she decided with the help of a fertility clinic to go ahead and get pregnant on her own. And she said, you know, this isn't ideal. This isn't what I expected. But you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do the motherhood thing first. I'm going to have my baby. And then I'm going to get right back out there and find the one, Mr. Mr. Wright. And so she did that, right? So she had a baby. And she went back on the date, out on the dating scene. And then it suddenly dawned on her, a 40-something-year-old single mother is not that great a catch. And all of a sudden, all of these quality and attractive men that she was used to disappeared, and she couldn't find anyone to date anymore. And then she began to panic, and she realized she might never marry. And so she wrote this book as this reflection on how her obsession to find Mr. Right, Mr. Perfect, actually caused her to miss out and to never marry. And so she wrote this book kind of addressed to single women, but it's really kind of uh, applicable to all single people, where she's making the case to settle for Mr. Good Enough and not wait forever, holding out for Mr. Perfect, Mr. Right. And uh, what's really interesting is that she's writing this book as a non-Christian. You know, she's, she's not a believer. And it's a great book, by the way. Um, if you're a single, I think it has a lot of valuable things, a lot of good insights. But what's really interesting is that she's coming at it from, from, from a, a non-Christian perspective. And yet the story really reads like a repentance story, you know, where she, she laments about all the mistakes that she's made. And she makes a case, and I think a very good case, that the elusive search for the one actually makes us miserable. And it makes us miserable because it makes us so picky that no one qualifies. You know? Um, there's this story that uh, she shares um, of how she went out on this date, right? And uh, there was this guy, and, you know, he was really great. The conversation was good. Um, you know, he was really witty and attractive and funny. But he did one thing wrong. As they were out at the restaurant, he took her to this expensive restaurant. He, instead of drinking bottled water, he, ordered, he asked the waiter for a cup of tap water. And she said to herself, there is no way that my soulmate would do something as gauche as order tap water at an expensive restaurant. And right there she dismissed him. She, never, she didn't go out on a second date with him. Because she had so elevated in her mind, right? She had such incredibly high standards about who this Mr. Wright was going to be that it made her so picky that one small fatal flaw would cut out a guy. And I think um, what's really interesting about her book is the reaction that it received. Um, she got, she got inundated with all of these thousands of emails, scathing, angry emails from single women. And they were telling her, you know, you are pathetic for lowering your standards. They said, you know, every woman deserves to find true love. You should never settle. It's better to be single for the rest of your life than to be stuck in some kind of boring, uninspiring marriage with Mr. quote-unquote good enough. 
And uh, I think what's really fascinating to me is that both Lori Gottlieb and her critics, even though they come to different conclusions about the matter, they actually fundamentally agree on the basic premise that out there is the one. And the only difference is that Lori Gottlieb is just much more cynical. And, you know, I guess approaching it from a 40-year-old woman's perspective, she's just so much more practical about the matter. And so she's basically saying, look, ladies, it's impossible to find Mr. Right, so go ahead and settle for Mr. Good Enough. But here's the problem, okay? Let's suppose that you do find him. Let's suppose that you meet the one, Mr. Right, and you fall deeply in love and you get married. This is what's going to happen. Listen to me, because this is so crucial. And I know it's going to be hard for you to believe this, but because you're going into that marriage with all of those expectations, you will experience deep disappointment and disillusionment. Okay? You will experience deep disappointment and disillusionment because no way can this guy meet your expectations. Um, Another book that I uh, have been reading in preparation for the series is called Together Alone. And uh, it's written by Tom, uh, Paul Amato. And it's basically a very scholarly look at the way marriage has been changing over the years. And um, one of the trends that he focuses on is this dramatic rise in the divorce rate. Right? Um, everyone knows it's happening, right? It, because it used to be the case... Um, before the 1960s and 70s, right? That's when a dramatic shift happened. Uh, in the 1950s and before, people would only get divorced because of some kind of crisis or trauma, right? Like, um, like adultery or abuse or something like that. But then um, in the 1960s and 70s, there, there was this dramatic rise in people getting a divorce, and the reason is because they were unhappy, and they would say things like, um, I still love him. I'm just not in love with him anymore, right? I just don't feel that excitement. I don't feel the buzz, the passion anymore. And the, and the shift that happened in, in the 1960s and 70s is that, is that people started to look to their spouse to be their soulmate. And when they did that, they had this dramatically higher expectations and therefore, you know, they started to say things like, I thought I married the one, but now, several years later, I realized I was wrong. <laughs> I made a mistake. I married the wrong guy. And so they tell themselves, I need to get a divorce so I can get back out there and find him because he's out there waiting for me. What's the point? What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that because of our idolatry of romantic love, it's created, it's messed us up, and it's created two big problems for us. Because we have this enormously high standard now about who we're willing to marry, we're so much more pickier than we used to be, we're that much less likely to actually get married. Every year, the percentage of married people in society goes down. And it's not by choice. You know, people want to be married, but they can't because of their impossibly high standards, because they're looking for the one. And the second thing that it's messed us up in is that even when we do get married, the odds of us getting divorced is so much higher now than it used to be because, you know, of the incredible disappointment and discouragement that we face when 
the person we marry lets us down. And so don't, don't you see, here's my point, don't you see that these are symptoms of the underlying problem? And what's the underlying problem? The problem is that we are looking to our romantic ideal to be for us what only God can be. And when you put the weight of divinity on your love partner, you're going to crush that person. There's no way, no matter how good and how excellent that person is, there's no way that they can give you the kind of soul-satisfying love and, and, and completion that you're looking for. And in fact, that's not what marriage is for. If you're trying to squeeze significance and, and meaning out of marriage in that way, then you will break it. And in the end, it will break you. All right, so that's my second point. So what's my third point? What's, the, what's marriage for anyway? What's the purpose and reason for marriage? And so let's look at our passage. Uh, some of you are saying, wow, are we only now looking at the Bible passage? Um, well, again, this sermon you know, is an introduction to the entire series. Um, so we're just laying down the, the framework, the paradigm. And so today we're going to just look at only one verse. One verse in Ephesians 5, by no means are we going to unpack it all. So let's look at uh, verse 32. Actually, let me set it up for you. Uh, Paul says something really amazing in verse 32 that should take our breath away. Because in verses 21 through 31, he's explaining, he's, he's, he's describing what marriage is and should be. And then he says in verse 32, listen to me, this mystery is profound. Right? He says this is a profound mystery. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, what he's telling us is that the ultimate meaning and purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. The ultimate meaning of marriage is not about the love between a man and a woman. But the ultimate meaning of marriage is about the love that God has for his people. And that is so deep, you know, that's so profound. And because, you see, our culture is so wrong on marriage, and yet at the same time, it's so, so close. Because, you see, the marriage relationship is unlike any other relationship, right? Marital love and romantic love is so, can be so deep and so intense, right? It awakens our deepest desires. It reaches down to our very core. And Paul is telling us that is not by accident. God designed marriage to be that way because, don't you see, in awakening our deepest feelings, marriage is not pointing back to itself, but it's a signpost pointing to a greater and ultimate reality, which is the story of Christ and the church. Don't you see that God gave us marriage and romantic love to show us, to teach us, to illustrate for us the gospel. So that as we understand marriage, we understand the gospel better. And that's why there's no more metaphor, there's no image that's more evoked in the Bible to describe the relationship between God and his people than marriage. Did you know that? Marriage is the dominant metaphor in the Bible. And what that tells us is that our longings and, and hopes for the one is really a yearning to know salvation in Christ. He is the reality behind the metaphor so that at the end of time, when we do fall into his embrace, we will experience our soul's rest. We will be home. 
and we will know that cosmic completion and wholeness that we're looking for. And, um, you know, don't misunderstand that I'm saying you should redirect your romantic feelings to Christ, you know. Actually, a lot of people kind of, not a lot, but, you know, some people interpret it in that way, right? And that's so shallow, like we're supposed to sing love songs to Jesus. No. <laughs> that is such a shallow, shallow and, and superficial understanding. I mean, think deeper. Go deeper, right? Think about the lofty language that lovers use. Do you know what I'm talking about? Why is it that we lovers employ these extravagant promises, right? We say things like, I will love you to the end of time. My love is as deep as the ocean, as, as unending as the sky. Why do we say that? Because don't you see, romantic love, the feelings that it elicits, is but a dim and distant echo of the reality, which is that Christ so loved the church. He so loved us that he sacrificed his life for us so that he could rescue us, so that he could bring us home. He endured the agonies of the cross so that he could have us, so that at the end of history, right, when the new heavens and the new earth comes in, right, the Bible describes, the book of Revelation describes uh, that moment as a great wedding feast, right? And Christ is the groom, and we, his people, are the bride, right? And we will no longer speak in terms of types and shadows, but we will know fulfillment and consummation, and we will at last be complete. And, and when the reality of that sinks deep into your heart, you'll be at peace, you know? You won't have that frantic desperation and that, and that profound unhappiness that haunts us all, so that if you're single, you'll be content. Because the beloved your heart is searching for is Christ. And you already have Christ in the gospel. And if you're married, you won't be so angry and frustrated at the failings of your spouse. Because the true and perfect spouse is Christ. And you already have him in the gospel. Now, does that mean, you know, that marriage is no longer necessary for us Christians? Um, of course not, because, gospel, because marriage is gospel reenactment. And therefore, to love your spouse to real, in a proper way, to have a really good and harmonious and beautiful marriage, is to live out the drama of the gospel in your life, you know? To play out um, the, the salvation story in your life. And therefore, understanding the gospel puts marriage in the right place, right? So that marriage is no longer the ultimate thing, but it's the thing that shows us what's ultimate. And therefore, listen, Mar uh, the gospel has to be central to your marriage. The gospel is not some sort of peripheral doctrine that you believe and then you get on with your married life. The gospel has to be central because your married life, every aspect, every element, points back to the gospel story, tells us about the gospel story. Now, I know that sounds really abstract. Some of you are saying, what does that look like? Um, and so that's what the series is for. <laughs> We're going to unpack, we're going to unfold, we're going to describe what that kind of gospel-centered married life looks like. And so I want to close with this. I know there are um, a lot of questions that this may have raised. Um, some of you are asking, um, is it wrong to expect to be in love in your marriage? Or that, is there only one person out there that I'm supposed to marry? How do I know I'm supposed to marry him or her? Um, is your spouse supposed to be your soulmate? 
These are all great questions, and I will answer them in time uh, through the series. And maybe that will be an enticement for you to keep listening and you know, stay on track. But uh, that's the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray. Uh, we know that one day the curtain of history will fall and there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will have our heart's delight and we will know you and we will know life eternal. And we pray uh, that romantic love and marriage, as good as these things are, we will put them in the proper place and in the end it will show us, it will teach us who you are and your love for us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.